As I mentioned at the outset, we've been talking about the words of Christmas. Today we are looking at the glories of our Savior. About a month ago, Kara came out of her bedroom to find water pouring down her hallway. Our washing machine had given up the ghost mid-cycle. Um, when you are in desperate need like that, who are you going to call? My wife knows I am not a mechanic, and so we shut the thing off as best we could, drain it, and I, I'd, I'd have taken, out, taken it out in the back and shot the thing. But my wife, in her wisdom, recognized that maybe this thing could be repaired, and so she called our go-to guy, and he came out and went, yeah, no, not a problem. I'm like, that's impressive. If you are in the midst of a financial knot due to inheritance issues or stock deals gone bad and April 15th is only a month away, you are not going to call yourself a dentist. You're going to call yourself an accountant. But if you bite down on a cherry not realizing there's a pit in there and the agony ricochets off the top of your skull and down your spine and you find in your mouth other chunks floating around besides the pit... Now you will call the dentist. When your heart is broken, you ache for someone to console your heart. When you are drowning, you need a lifeguard. In today's passage in Luke chapter 2, we're going to read about the angels announcing to the shepherds the glory of what had taken place in the nearby town. They highlighted the root of man's most desperate need. Man needed, man needs a Savior. Let's read together in Luke chapter 2, verse 10. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, as we come into your word, we want to hear your word. And so I beg even now that you would guard my heart, that you would guard my mouth and my mind. For my brothers and sisters here, oh God, that you would guard each one that they would be discerning, that your word would fill us with your glory, that we would delight in the joy and the presence of your word, that we would be a people transformed by your word. And so here we are, God. We beg that you would have your way with us in Jesus' name. Amen. So why do I need a Savior? Why do I need a Savior? In the world, man is broken. Man is broken and man doesn't get it. Look in the news and you see violence increasing. A lady going into a store with a pickaxe this week, Merry Christmas, to rob the store with a pickaxe. Cities, thankfully not this one yet, are rife with gun violence. People 
have the audacity to drive their vehicles into parades and kill spectators. Why? Does poverty play into it? Yeah, but... Might there be injustice for past wrongs? Yeah, but... Today, in our culture, in our government, in our society, we tend to excuse these things. We rationalize them away. And few will get to the heart of the matter and leave people wondering, why does this happen? What is the root cause? Not only is violence increasing in the world, more and more humanity doesn't even know who they are anymore. Who am I? Might I believe, truly believe that I am something contrary to reality? Might I, I mean, there are people who think they're dogs, truly. Might I believe I am something contrary to reality? Yeah, but might I have desires in my flesh that are wrong, that are contrary to God's word? Might they be true desires in my flesh and they're contrary to God's word? Yes, but... And today we will condone it. That's okay. We encourage it. We exhort it. Rather than help people confront it, we will tend to spray gasoline on the raging bonfire of my broken soul. Name, pick your issue. You can go through the scriptural lists of the sins. Jealousy. Oh, you know, that's okay because, you know, it's okay for you to be jealous even though there may not be any good valid reason for you to be jealous. Anger. You are just to be anger, angry. So stir it up. Bitter. Oh, I can see what that person did to you. I can see what husbands, wives, I can see what your spouse did to you. And so that root of bitterness festers. Wrath. I, I understand your rage. That's okay. Covetousness. Man, you, what you've got, you got a new truck. Man, I really want that new truck. I don't have a truck. I got my old car. And we covet. And we lust. You do you. I'll do me. We will either exalt the sin and say, hey, that's okay. Or we will rationalize it away and say, it's not my fault. But God, in his word, makes plain to us that man has a sin problem. This is what David read to us in Matthew chapter 15. I'm going to turn there here for a bit before I go back to Luke chapter 2. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and his disciples. The Pharisees are condemning him for eating with unwashed hands and the like and Jesus is pointing out to them that they really don't know what Scripture says. And at the end of the matter, in in chapter 15, verse 15, Peter has the courage to go, "Uh, Lord, I don't get it. I love Peter. He says, but Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. Peter always, like, 
He's, he, if it's on his tip of his tongue, it's coming out. And Peter goes, I don't get it. I'm not tracking with you. But don't you love Jesus too? Jesus doesn't just get all, you know, you're dismissed, man. I'm, <laughs> how, long have, how long have you been following me and you don't get it? He does, he does go, do you still not see? But he goes on to explain to them. The rabbi teaches his disciples. Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This is what defiles a person. Notice the list. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. You can look into your own thoughts. You know, what evil thoughts do you have in a week? What evil thoughts do you have when you drive down Cal Boulevard? What evil thoughts do you have when you are frustrated at work by a policy or a boss or a coworker? Evil thoughts. From out of the heart come evil thoughts. From out of the heart comes murder. I suspect none of you here have murdered anybody or you wouldn't be here, likely. But Jesus made plain in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and following, that if you hate your brother in your heart, you have already committed murder, adultery. It is the lust of the heart. This is why Job said, I make a covenant with my eyes. But Jesus said, if, if you lust after another woman, you have already committed adultery with her in your heart. Out of the heart comes adultery. Well, that's within marriage. Well, so let's throw the blanket a little further. Sexual immorality. Anything outside of marriage. Let's cover everything. Let's cover all the bases. Any physical relationship outside of marriage comes from the corruption of my heart. Theft. That's that whole idea of covetousness. Wanting something that somebody else has. Jesus warned in Luke chapter 12 verse 15 to be on your guard against all covetousness. Out of your heart comes false witness. Lying. Lying to save your own skin. Lying to make yourself look better. And slander. That's to make you look worse. So that I go up and you come down. Out of our heart come these things. Jesus said, these are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. If I merely look in the mirror, I understand that I am wicked at my root. When I see the hellish things that people do, the why... A lot of people do ask why. I don't, I don't ask why. I see very well why people do things because I see the darkness of my own heart. It's just, you know, they may, they may have really murdered. They may have really driven their car into a parade. And they go, I wouldn't do that, but man, I have other festering problems where I go, you just amplify that a little bit and I'm right there behind the wheel. 
The problem is at the core of our volition, our choosing. We're broken. We all, each of us, have a sin problem. This is why Paul pulled out his collection of verses in the Old Testament. He probably had them written on a, he didn't have post-it notes then, but whatever they had back then. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18, this, this is fantastic. This is man. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. They all have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I have six children, seven grandchildren, two in the womb currently. I didn't have to teach any of the six or seven to sin. Didn't have to. And it's a sure bet as the Vikings won't win the Super Bowl, probably in my lifetime, that I won't have to teach the other two in the womb to sin. David noted in Psalm 51 that he was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did his mother conceive him. She wasn't a hooker. She wasn't an adulteress. But David was conceived with the sin nature. Sin is epidemic. And its ultimate consequence is worse. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 makes plain. But it's not merely the physical death. We know that everyone's going to die. Everyone who has a disease and recovers from the disease, we are thankful for that. That is a great thing. But we know that everyone is physically going to die. But there is something worse. And that is a spiritual condemnation that John refers to in Revelation as the second death. Revelation 20 verse 6. This is the lake of fire. This is, as Jesus says in Matthew, tw- or Matthew 25, verse 46, this is eternal punishment. This is the eternal lake of fire. Eternal. It's, you're not going to be there for some time and then you get out. It's not like being sent to your room as a child. Oh, you know, all I got to do is endure this for a little bit. No, this is eternal punishment separated from God. Six times in Matthew, it is likened to weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those who are there. A second death. We have a sin problem. The wages of sin is death. I can't pay this back. We have a debt that we cannot pay. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives a parable of a king settling accounts. In Matthew 18, 24, one servant had a debt of 10,000 talents. And we go, okay, whatever. I don't know. In, like in Italy, if it was like 10,000 lira, that's like 15 cents or something. But 10,000 talents, let's do a math problem. One talent is 6,000 denarius. Denarii. 
6,000. Okay, that still doesn't help me. But one denarius is a day's wage for a laborer, a common laborer. A day's wage. One talent is 6,000 days wages. He owed 10,000 talents. One talent is 16 years worth of wages. Some would say it's actually 20, but if we were to do the actual math, 16. 10,000 talents is 16,000 years worth of wages. At $50,000 a year, that's $8 billion you owe. Okay, now let's, let's dismiss Elon Musk here for a moment. The rest of us, we're not going to repay it. That's the point. The servant couldn't repay it. The king forgave it. But you have a sin debt. Every one of us who is born has a sin debt that we can't pay. Our debt is against a holy God. He is holy. We are stained by our sin. He is good. And we have distrusted him and called him a liar. He is love and we have betrayed him for the satisfaction of our own desires. He is our provider and we are unthankful. His justice demands, his righteousness demands punishment. And so bad is man's sin that eternity in the lake of fire is the only satisfaction. And if we end there, we are doomed. But God, as I read in Isaiah, God is a righteous savior. He says, I am a righteous God. So I have to deal with the sin problem. Being a righteous God, he can't look aside. He can't go la, la, la. It's not there because it is. He is a righteous God and savior. There is none besides him. So what is he going to do? And we see that in Luke chapter 2. We go back there. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Unto you is born this day a, sa- a, a Savior is born? A baby? <laughs> what? Are you kidding? You know, I'm, I'm sure the heavenly spectacle just blew the shepherds away and so staggered them that the awe of this whole thing was like, okay, and, and they went. But you think about it, you go, how can a baby save me? How's a baby going to save me? Well, the angel says this baby is, is Christ. The anointed one, the Messiah. He is the promised Messiah. The Jews expected a king. But in Isaiah chapter 9, the famous Christmas passage, Isaiah writes, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government 
and of peace there will be no end. So you can see this whole idea of messianic kingship. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So we see that this baby is Christ. But this baby is Christ the Lord. You go, okay, well, what's, what's that mean? It could be master. could just mean he's, he's going to be a master over some folks. But that phrase, the Lord, is used by Luke three times prior to this. In Luke chapter 1, verse 6, Zechariah and Elizabeth walked before the statutes of the Lord. In Luke chapter 1, verse 28, to Mary, the angel declared that the Lord is with you. In Luke chapter 2, we just read it, verse 9, the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. This is speaking of God. And so when the angels then turn around and say, this is Christ the Lord, they are announcing the baby's deity. Fully God, fully man, and born to die. Paul sums this up in breathtaking terms and Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Paul writes, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested. The righteousness of God has been made known apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned, we've been dealing with that, and fall short of the glory of God. But they are justified, made right with God, by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth, this baby in the manger, God is going to put forth as a propitiation by his blood, the payment, the final payment by his blood. Again, to be received, this gift is to be received by faith. I believe it. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, patience, he's passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that God may be just and the justifier. He is the one who condemns, and he is the one who is making us right through the finished work of Jesus Christ. What a God. Paul, a little bit later, in his letter to the Corinthians, writes this big, thick passage in a nutshell, he says, For our sake, God made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So how is the baby going to save us? God came in flesh to die that we might live. So, 
Why is this good news of great joy? Man, I, I hope you're getting it already. But consider some further ramifications of this point. You, if you do not know God, if you do not know Christ as Savior today, you don't have to get right with God. You can't. Right now, if you are separated from God, alienated and lost, you can come. In fact, it is only with those empty hands that you can come. And it doesn't matter, man or woman, young or old, hale or frail, the only thing that qualifies you for salvation is your sin. And you probably got that covered. If that's true, then salvation is available to you. If you see no sin in your life, if you see no problem when you look in the mirror, too bad. You still need a Savior. But you are in a terrible and desperate position and in danger of the fires of hell. Saint, brother and sister, in Christ, this good news for great joy is not for you when you were saved. This good news of great joy is for you now. If you are spent and frustrated from striving to live a life of holiness, the life that God calls us to, understand that in your own strength, you can't. You can't live that life. God says, be holy for I am holy. And I go, I can't. And he goes, you're right. In 1 John 1.8, John writes, if we say to believers, if we say that we are without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But saint, we have the encouragement of Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All right, well, okay, great. There's no condemnation. I don't, lake of fire is not a problem, but I'm still dealing with this sin. That can't be eternal life. You're right. God expects us to be more and more conformed to the likeness of his son. As Christ is the sole source of our salvation, Jesus Christ is the sole source of our sanctification. That process of living a life that is more and more in conformity to the good and pleasing word of God. Consider the example that Jesus gave in John chapter 15, that he is the vine, we are the branches. The branch is attached to the vine. It is only through the vine that the nourishment comes. It is only through the vine that the support comes. It is only through the vine that the life comes, which is why Jesus told the disciples in that example, apart from me, you can do nothing. Pluck the branch off, the branch withers and dies. With regard to issues of sin, Jesus Christ exemplified this on the night before his crucifixion when he took up a towel to wash his disciples' feet. And Peter took exception to this. Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. What are you doing? You're the Lord. You don't wash my feet. Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter then 
always wanted to go over the edge. Uh, says, well, here are my hands and my head too. And Jesus said, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. John, who was there, writes later in his first epistle, if we confess our sin, again, to believers, he is faithful and just to, to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are already justified by the finished work of Jesus Christ, but I still deal with sin in my life. And I still confess that sin. And the blood of Jesus covers that now. Well, how do I combat sin? The same way in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 verse 13, it says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit and you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that I can have victory over sin in my life. I cling to Christ. But this good news of great joy is not just for living in this world. Yes, it is that. And yes, it is for looking ahead. There's a glory that is coming that we cannot even imagine or fathom. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. And we may think, oh man, that's going to be great after we die. No, you can have fellowship with Jesus Christ right now. This was Paul's passion. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11, he says, Whatever gain I had, all of, all of the riches, everything I got, I count that as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing right now, having relationship with Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. I can't do that. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. Not that I may know him at some point future, but that I may know him now and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. The glory of eternal life is not health. The glory of eternal life is not no more sin. Those are great things. The glory of eternal life is not seeing loved ones who have died in the faith. That's a great thing too. The glory of eternity is Christ. And that begins right now. And that is good news of great joy. I don't need a therapist. I don't need a life coach. I don't need more money. Nearly 40 years ago, I needed a Savior. And I desperately need Him still today. My friends, if you sit here today and do not know, if you know Christ as Savior, 
Do not let this day pass. Today is the day of salvation. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. Turn to Him and be saved. If you do know Christ the Savior, but feel like you're stuck on step one of the Christian life, please talk with me. Or text me about what it means to savor the fullness of life in Jesus Christ our Lord. If you sit here today and do know Christ as Savior, but are deeply entangled in sin, you still need a Savior. Only in Christ can you find the power and the strength to put off the sin and to pursue heart, soul, mind, and strength, your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you sit here today and do know Christ as Savior, but are bogged down by things of this life, riches, family, job, toys, entertainment, you too still need a Savior. Only Christ can help you to see the riches and the fullness of joy to be found in an abandoned, unrestrained, and prioritized relationship with Him. And only He can help you set your priorities. So today, here, on the sunset of our Christmas season, may each one of us turn fully to the good news of great joy to be found this day in our Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, be glorified in these people. Oh God, may your word shine forth in us like the dawn as we go from this place into a world that is lost and dying. Oh God, that the joy of our salvation may fill us throughout the days. Give us hope and opportunity as we encounter the lost. Father, help us to be your hands and feet in this world. Be glorified in your church, we beg. In Jesus' name, amen.